Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Hi, Luke. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. It's an honor. And uh, everybody listening, you're in great hands. Todd uh, presents locally, nationally on the demographic trends and assessment of the LGBTQ community. Uh, Todd, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Why why Pride? What brought you here? Absolutely. Um, First of all, I am a part of the community. I I identify as pansexual and I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I have a passion in working with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, unfortunately, we've seen an increase in marginalized communities of mental health and substance use disorders. And so I really firmly believe in the need for culturally competent care. And along with you and our co-workers, I think Pride Institute does an outstanding job of understanding the specific needs of the LGBTQ plus community. And so when you say culturally competent care, can you dissect that a little further? What does that mean? What it means is that people have understanding of sexual orientation, gender identity, and not just those two ideas, but also the impact and intersectionality of an individual's race, their socioeconomic status, uh, their age, their abilities, and how all of these factors, and at Pride Institute, it is really about sexual orientation, gender identity, but how all those factors impact an individual and what may lead or contribute to their use of substances and an increase in mental health issues. And what are some of those external factors that may you know, influence someone to you know, pick up using drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be? So when I hear you ask that question, it really does resonate with the idea of minority stress model. And that model posits that marginalized communities, and that includes underrepresented uh, gender identities, uh, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, individuals that are part of a marginalized community experience chronic stressors, not because of who they are, but because of society. And what really resonates with me in particular is that it takes the onus of responsibility off the individual and really places it on society and the impact that society has on the individual. And so just to play devil's advocate, what would you say to someone who would then come back and say, well, it isn't society's fault, it's the person's fault? Um, Or it's, um, you know, this is the way it is, so you have to kind of conform to our standards. I would say that's... uh, I would completely disagree with that um, because if there was no such thing as discrimination, oppression, victimization, or bullying of individuals based on their identities, then it would be a somewhat more perfect world. But when you're living with chronic stress, when you're worried about being, for some people, murdered just based on your identity, um, it's pretty difficult to feel safe and feel and not feel like an other compared to maybe straight, heterosexual, white indiv- uh, white males of a certain age, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. What I love about, I think, minority stress theory and what I've learned, I think, from you a lot is 
it really does, in my mind, it, it comes down to simple math. One plus one is two. Trauma plus substance is where we're at now. Um, and really the whole overturn in my brain of like, I remember before working in the field thinking that addiction problems were just people didn't know when to say when and they didn't know when to like stop partying. But really I've learned that it is a form of medication. You're absolutely right, Luke. Um, many people, you know, use substances to not feel or to, to avoid pain or to escape the reality of their lives. And oftentimes in this community, what we will see, I'm not saying it is for everyone, but oftentimes bars and clubs are places where LGBTQ individuals meet each other. And what I've seen happen uh, during my uh, work with the LGBTQ community, the clubs and, and bars become a place for people to meet other like individuals. And having that drink or a couple of drinks really takes that edge off the anxiety and the nervousness of, especially if you're new to to the community, it really takes that edge off of, you know, the fear and other people's expectations. But what I've seen happen over the years is that people start associating, oh, anytime I take a drink, I have decreased anxiety, I feel better about myself, I have an increase in confidence. And so oftentimes we see people move from socialization of substance use into habituation. And then from habituation, we see people move into substance abuse issues or, or problems caused by substance use. And then it's not uncommon that we will see people go into some type of substance use disorder. So as the LGBTQ community becomes more accepted in society, uh, what would you say to people that, you know, are like minority stress theory is not applicable to this community anymore? You know, these people are accepted within society. Uh, what would you say to that? I would say um, those individuals need to open their eyes to the reality of the situation. You know, up until 2020, uh, we had a political regime that attempted, you know, explicitly attempted to take the rights away from the LGBTQ plus community by not allowing people to serve in the military. We still see today that individuals can't adopt through religious institutions or they're not allowed to adopt if they're part of the LGBTQ community. Um, we see that it was just until 2020 that people could be discriminated against, you know, in the work setting due to their LGBTQ plus identity. And so, and, and if we look historically, Throughout history, we see that we make movement towards giving everyone equal rights, and then we have a political party come in that attempts to take those rights away. And so we see every four to eight years a change in human, basic human rights. And so what happens is that that trauma, that uh, fear, that sense of impending doom carries throughout our history uh, through generations. And so there's always a sense of when is the next shoe gonna drop? Mm -hmm. And so we earn rights and then someone can come in by the stroke of a pen or some type of vote and take rights away. So it's really difficult to feel secure in having all rights when you know that that can change at any time. Right. You know, in addition to understanding sexual orientation, gender identity. I think it's really important, and this dialogue is so important, to understand and know the specific issues of the community, such as, number one, terminology, uh, pronouns, 
um, the coming out process and what that means and, and, and what does that mean for the individual, you know, family, what does that look like, family of choice versus family of origin. Um, so there's a host of specific issues that apply to the community that not everyone understands. And so when we talk about cultural competency, it's having the ability and, and knowledge and education around those specific issues. I also like to ask people to take sort of this um, cultural humility approach also in working with the community. And what that asks is that individuals, you know, sort of uh, submerge themselves into the culture by, you know, going to a pride event or spending time with others that are part of the community to really get to understand and know, you know, the minutia of the community. So when other organizations who might not be LGBTQ specific, and this question stems from the NATAP conference or NAATP conference that we went to in Denver a few weeks ago that was all around diversity, equity, and inclusion, what can other organizations do who aren't LGBTQ specific, what can they do, I guess, to not just come across like they're doing something for their marketing brochure, but instead actually change the processes from within? Great question. If I could start by addressing the whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, at the NAATP conference, we both attended a speaker um, who wrote the book, Grandma's Hands. Uh, yep. And uh, he's a, a black man that talks about his experiences as a black man in the society. And he talked about the DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion movement. And it just knocked me over the head. When we talk about diversity, what we're actually saying is that there's one set standard and then everything that is like one off from that standard is the diversity piece. Shouldn't it really be that diversity is um, a milestone or a yardstick for all people of all races, colors, ethnicity, sexual orientation? So getting out of the idea that white is thy, the, the yardstick and everything beyond that is diverse, mm -hmm. everything should be the yardstick. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Totally. And so going back to your question, Luke... Number one, ensure that the minute someone walks through the door, they see representations of themselves. You know, have artwork or literature, resource binders or, or other types of information or literature uh, speaking to the LGBTQ community. Have signage, have posters, have pictures. Secondly, in documents and forms, ensure that there is space for all identities, including gender identity, sexual orientation, and the host of other identities that people endorse. Uh, we want to make sure that agencies are actually providing educational opportunities and training to their employees on the issues of the LGBTQ plus community. And one great way of doing that is I think Pride does a wonderful job by volunteering and showing up to conferences and local providers and, and agencies, sharing the information and uh, education and expertise that we've all gained over the years and helping others to move forward in their LGBTQ um, cultural uh, competency. 
One thing that I'm really proud of um, here at Pride is that, and this is abnormal, I don't know many organizations who do this, but we have gen uh, gender neutral um, rooming and housing. So can you talk a little bit about our experience with that so far and anything you've come across as far as pros, cons, anything? Yes, absolutely. So in at the beginning of 2020, Pride Institute made the decision that all of our rooms would be gender neutral, meaning that we won't assign people to rooms based on their gender. There's absolutely no research that supports um, gender differentiated bathrooms or rooms that there is no evidence that there's increased trauma or violence that occurs when multiple genders room in the same room. Mm -hmm. And so what we decided as an LGBTQ uh, treatment facility it is our job to really be on the forefront of change for the community. And so again, we made that decision that all rooms will be gender neutral and people will be assigned to rooms based on their sleeping patterns or behaviors, their waking patterns and behaviors, their age, um, perhaps some of their other personal qualities that they have. And so trying to assign rooms based on those factors instead of gender. Gender neutral restrooms, we have both the bathrooms and shower areas that are gender neutral. Um, with that though, we do provide an individualized bathroom and shower for those that maybe do have a history of trauma or body image issues. But again, research does not support or give any evidence that there's increased trauma or assaultive behaviors towards genders that room together. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a big change within, you know, income, uh, incoming clients um, to the Pride Institute with those um, gender neutral rooms? I have not seen one client be upset about their, their room assignment. What we typically find is that there could be a personality conflict. It's not based on gender, it's the personality conflict. And so what we do, if there's a, a personality conflict, we will work with the two two or three roommates that are having issues and try to help them be assertive with each other to work it out. But if they absolutely can't, then we're going to move the person that is requested to move change to another room. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not due to gender, but that's based on personality conflict. Um, we have not had any pushback from regulatory agencies or the public in general on how we assign rooms. So um, I, I think it's one of the most... Uh, progressive things that Pride Institute has done in many years. And I think it falls and ties really nicely back to <clears throat> the conversation around minority stress, because I think when you look historically at, like, you know, the trans population and their distrust for medical establishments and non-binary folks, I think that, you know, meeting them where they're at and letting them be who they actually are, sometimes for the first time in their life, can only help aid them while they're in this, you know, I guess, conflicting time. Yes, um, it is, and you both know this, Kaylee and Luke, it's very heartwarming when we have someone come into Pride Institute and they don't even realize that their gender identity is an issue for them. Mm -hmm. And through the treatment process, all of a sudden they have this aha moment where like, oh my God, this is the missing piece of my recovery. And so to have a space where, yes, gender is just a social construct that we label so we can communicate with each other, but for them to actually live the gender that they internally feel they are and not have these rules around rooms and showers and bathrooms is a very freeing feeling for individuals. 
Well, on that note, Todd, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you. Keep up the amazing work, you two. Oh, back at you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.